Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In the final National Security Podcast episode of the year, some of the team from the college take stock of Australia's security landscape in 2022. Dale Stanley, Elise Stevenson, Rory Medcalf and Will Stoltz also discuss what they'll be keeping an eye on in 2023 and the years to come. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Dale, Elise, 2022. What the hell just happened? Gosh, there's so much to discuss. Um, I think, though, we might start with um, the domestic space before we maybe look to uh, what's happened overseas before looking to the next year. Um, but to to kick us off, I mean, Elise, domestically, we've we've had quite a few big shifts, including an election in 2022. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I'm, I work in the Global Institute for Women's Leadership as well as here at the National Security College. And I think one of the really big things that we've noticed has been quite a renewed focus around gender equality, various forms of uh, kind of adjusting workplace relations, I suppose. We've got a draft of the Parliamentary Code of Conduct um, after Brittany Higgins kind of brave sand and a lot of, uh, I guess, work across the Australian Human Rights Commission and beyond. Um Climate change uh, investment in things, I suppose, that we've seen a little bit of a uh, an absence in years before now. It feels like this last year with the election, I suppose, has been a real kind of critical moment and a, a time to check, okay, well, how are we actually going? How are, um, you know, we responding to future generations and young people? And just how much is our policies, I guess, fit for purpose for the current decade? I don't know what you think about that, Rory, from your perspective. So I, I would so that this year has been obviously very significant in Australia's um, domestic policy settings with a broad national security application. So that's code for saying that while we've had an election, we've had a change of government, and I think in many ways a lot of the um, really, really, really the the more progressive priorities that. Um, that suit the times, whether it's on climate policy or on social inclusion, you know, even though these are rightly high on the agenda for uh, the Albanese government, a lot of the national security settings that we've seen in recent years, the, the issue about sovereignty, the question about the, the challenge from China in the region, how's Australia going to protect its interests in this more contested future, they're still all on the table too. And there's a kind of national consensus forming around them. So I think the huge test really lies ahead, and that is how does the Australian government and the broader Australian community um, grip up as many of these issues as possible? You know, they're all priorities in some kind of integrated national worldview uh, in, in the next few years. 
much easier said than done. It's kind of the theme that I um, harped on about recently in a, um, a public lecture here at ANU. But uh, I think when you're sitting, uh, as thankfully none of, none of us are, uh, around the cabinet table, it probably is much harder to um, allocate resources, whether it's to defence, whether it's to climate mitigation, and say that you you know, you know you're absolutely doing the right thing for Australia's interests. But at least that um, that holistic national conversation has begun. Uh, Dale, um, Elise and Roy both mentioned um, climate uh, climate change and its kind of elevation as a security issue under the new government. One of the things that um, has taken place is the introduction of the climate minister into the National Security Committee um, of Cabinet. You've obviously worked across government and you and you work quite closely with government agencies in kind of casting forward to dealing with um, new issues as they impact Australia's national security. How, like, practically speaking, how significant do you think it is that the climate change minister now sits in in that context? What what changes do you think it might do to the uh, how the public service addresses that issue? Yeah, thanks, Will. Um, yeah, it's good to be here. The Futures Hub work closely with government to really stretch thinking sort of out of the immediate and look at long-term trends and issues and how we can plan for those today. And we've certainly um, tried to incorporate uh, climate change in its various aspects and what that means for policy settings today in our workshops and our scenario development. So when we think about the future, we think often about, you know, utopian or dystopian futures and how we can think about, you know, climate change and what that might look like going forward. I think having um, Minister Bowen um, in the NSC is vital to considering, you know, that broader perspective of national security and how we uh, plan for the complexity of those futures um, today. So I think it's it's a great addition. Uh, my understanding is that the, the new department is very, you know, energised by that and I think it broadens out the conversation and ensures that we, we take a broader view to the challenges that we have going forward. I mean, we've had such terrible flooding this year. Overlay that with the trends we're seeing, you know, domestically with, um, you know, social cohesion prior to the election. We're all watching, waiting eagerly to see, you know, what might occur. Um, it really does add a layer of complexity when we think about how we will respond domestically from a defence perspective um, to the increased rate of uh, floods and fires mm. and, and climate impacts. Um, how do we mobilise and how do re- we resource those domestically? Um, when we think about the complexity of those and particularly in our near region and beyond. Mm. Elise, you've done um, a lot of work looking at uh, public trust in democratic institutions in Australia. What do you think about this idea of, you know, we're including an ever-growing range of issues under the banner of national security, like we've spoken about climate change and and the value of potentially securitising climate change in in one context, but does how do you think that might impact on people's um, trust in government and I suppose expectations of government as well? Yeah, I think these are really important issues to to take seriously, firstly. I mean, the cynical side of me would say, oh, well, if you do securitise, um, you know, climate change, well, that gives you access to a much bigger budget. And I think that this mm. kind of budgetary conversation is actually a really critical uh, one to have. I mean, if you do have a look at the most recent budget papers, I think there was some, you know, $25 million, um set aside to battle climate change, whatever battling climate change actually means. Um, and of course, there was increased investment in renewables, uh, upgrading the grid, you know, restoration of the Climate Change Authority. But, you know, how 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 far is enough given the scale and immensity of the challenges that we're we're focusing on. And I think more broadly, um, the trend that I'm seeing is really questioning, well, 
you know, what is national security in the first place? A lot of the issues that we traditionally defined as national security issues were very much so kind of international facing. And, you know, we, we had our eye on the region and the world and, you know, kind of quite traditional in like wars and, and, you know, guns and ships and, mm. you know, men on the ground. And I think that this just is not the reality of national security in this kind of 21st century, you know, increasingly we're looking at things like space security. I mean, we had the US kind of senior officials over in the last few weeks here in Australia talking about how, well, we're going to have conflict in space and it will happen soon. And to my mind, as someone who studies uh, gender equality and women, peace and security agenda and some of these other aspects, you know, again, I'm left thinking, you know, are we applying some of these base kind of principles of, you know, women, peace and security agenda? or, um, you know, similar to space security? How much are we actually taking stock of what is a national security issue? What is a domestic security issue? Is there such a thing as a difference between the two? If there is, how do we allocate and reprioritize? I think it's a really, really tricky question ultimately. And government certainly has to deal with this complexity. And I think that that's no easy task. One part of that, though, you know, that kind of trust and accountability piece is making sure that government is representative, is making sure that there's a level of transparency around what we are doing and how funds are being used. And even, you know, um, I suppose who is who is making these decisions and for whom is it benefiting and, and for whom perhaps is it not? So big Questions, um, you know, on my mind, we've just reached 8 billion people mm. worldwide. You know, uh, our region, Southeast Asian region, has the biggest youth population in the world. Our most recent election really saw, um, you know, the youth vote, I suppose, having quite a strong say in election outcomes too. So, again, this comes to trust and accountability, how much we're fulfilling, you know, what young people want, what women want, what First Nations people want, um, what the whole of society wants and and what is national security in this context. Tricky, mm. tricky questions, I think. And I suppose is it going to be, is by framing these things solely as a security issue, is that actually going to be inclusive? Is it going to actually bring people into the discussion or is well, it going to push people out? I mean, like- that's right. I mean, these are, we're talking about national security, um, very heavily male dominated, you know, historically speaking and, and still up until this day. And so also I am, con- you know, conscious of the fact that, okay, uh, if we have a look at funding and resourcing, um, I don't know, is this going to flow through in a way that is inclusive? I'm, I'm yet to really see that, but I think it does need to be a focus. Mm, mm. I'd, I'd bring attention to, um, and I think building on what Elise has said, I'd, I'd build attention to a really interesting speech that the Minister for Home Affairs gave last week, uh, Claire O'Neill's speech to the National Press Club, which takes a long view. So I guess hopefully that's something that our Futures Hub can take an interest in. Um, she does talk about national security. She's the Home Affairs Minister, but she uses terms like resilience um, a hell of a lot more uh, I think frequently and substantially in that speech. And she, in fact, moves to a couple of practical initiatives the government's undertaking, setting up task forces on national resilience and task forces on, uh, frankly, democratic and social trust, uh, both of which I think are themes that if, if you're trying to uh, generate inclusion and unity in a democracy where a lot of our interests and values are under strain, um, you're hopefully going to get um, bigger public buy-in. So I, I just look at those as a couple of green shoots for the year ahead and for, for steps that I think government's taking where, you know, I think deep within the bureaucracy and the politi- political class, there is awareness of a lot of the tensions we're talking about here, but also a recognition that when you're driving the ship of state, you've got to 
take decisions, take actions. And so if there are processes that, um, you know, listeners here uh, or members of our broader policy and academic communities would want to get involved in, uh, I'd, I'd recommend those. And Roy, you've, you've mentioned resilience, and I think a lot of the topics we've spoken about thus far are kind of about um, issues affecting our national resilience from within Australia, but obviously the international scene, scene will dictate quite a lot about the extent to which we are truly a resilient country. So I suppose turning to the international issues that have, that have hit us this year, obviously um, the invasion of Ukraine was a, a very significant one, um, as well as a number of perhaps you know much less dramatic um, but nevertheless impactful events on the international stage, you know, whether it was the uh, CCP's 20th National Congress, um, Biden and Xi, their, their meeting, um, the myriad of different international um, summits that have occurred this year. I mean, taking stock of uh, the state of the international system at the moment and and uh, potentially what you think is the biggest challenges to Australia's resilience and national security emanating from 2022, what, what stands out at you as most significant? Well, I'd actually... Again, pick up on a point that um, Elise was going to about really people power, as I'd put it. You know, the role of um, mobilised a mobilised public, and this year has been really striking in the number of occasions where where mobilised populations and uh, and and I would almost say um, democratic populations, but I'm going to include. The people of China in this, the People's Republic of China in this, in this um, conversation, where 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 people have basically uh, organised informally uh, but very actively to stand up for for their interests and their sense of um, autonomy and values. Of course, the um, the stand that the people of Ukraine have taken against the brutality of the Russian invasion. Is you know the most, uh, if you like, um, powerful example of 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 people having an impact on the international environment. But if you look at uh, at China, at the um, the protests against uh, the zero COVID policy and the lockdowns recently, and the very creative way, I would say that ordinary Chinese people uh, express their point of view and have had a direct impact on. Policy uh, that's pretty inspiring. Um, Iran, the uh, not only the women of Iran, but certainly the women of Iran uh, have been in the uh, the front line and literally the you know the firing line there. But but the mobilisation of much of the population of Iran for a um, you know essentially for for, for human rights and for uh, for rights that we would identify with in a democracy like Australia. There's some fascinating examples of people power having an impact on the direction of history this year, and that's that's one of the more hopeful notes that I would um, pause on. And I guess interacting with all those forces, Dale, is um, rapid and emerging shifts in technology. I mean, in, in the work that you do at the Futures Hub, um, I believe you look quite a lot at technological disruption as a as a vector in some of this geopolitical change, what what are kind of one of what are some of the reoccurring um, technological disruptions that are kind of most on your radar? Yeah, it's a good question, Will. Um, technology is certainly one of the elements that that we look at as part of a bigger picture in terms of when we develop uh, scenarios, when we're looking at trends and how they play out. Um, technology is a big part of that. There's been some interesting AI developments in the last twelve months. Um, at, there's a, a new AI bot called Dali E2, 
which is um, this really incredible art generation tool, which may play out in sort of how that influences deep fakes and other mm. issues. I mean, we might not think of how these sort of uh, systems might, you know, play out in the art world. It doesn't seem like a national security issue, but actually has the capability to influence, um, you know, many of the things that we're looking at. Um, and can kind of take those artists out of, um, you know, developing great sort of careers and and um, and income. So we've been seeing technology as one of those interesting kind of overlays in how we think about the future, of course. Um, yeah, so I thought that was kind of an interesting AI development in the last 12 months and has been raised in some of our um, workshops with government, actually. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and and technology's interaction, particularly with the information space, I think has been particularly positively and sometimes negatively disruptive. We've seen, um, you know, the, the information war that uh, Ukraine has very successfully fought. So at least um, information, you know, the information space has become much more contested for people and is really impacting upon voters' trust in government. I mean, what are the concerns do you think that we need to be paying most close attention to when it comes to that broad topic of um, trust in government, whether it be for Australians or other demographics out there? Yeah, I think, well, one, one thing that's been, of course, on everyone's kind of, um, minds this year has been around a lot of the cyber attacks that we're increasingly see, seeing, you know, I mean, Op- Optus Breach was one, Medibank, of course, but oh, there's thousands that kind of go, um, either, you know, underreported, unreported in some circumstances, but certainly we kind of have this growing issue and how do we actually battle with, um, with, cyber attacks full stop, but also with then, well, what do companies and what do governments do to be able to enjoy, uh, ensure some sort of, um, if not, I guess, prevention, then then justice or recompense or, you know, how, how do we design these systems for the for the future? And I think that is a really big, you know, government does have a role there as, um, you know, if, ensuring that some sort of standards are held, right, mm-hmm. and, and accountability if things do go wrong. I think that that is a really big uh, place that government needs to step in. If I can kind of get onto, you know, one of the topics of my research, another area of um, trust and accountability, I would say, is in the area of intelligence services. So, Mm. of course, I do research on gender and various forms of diversity and so on. And in the national security and in particular in the intelligence sector, I mean, this is another opportunity we've now got in the United States, basically this recognition that workforce challenges are going to be one of our biggest challenges when it comes to national security and therefore one of our biggest risks is actually mm. the workforce and mm. and not having the workforce and the representative workforce that we need um, in an attempt to kind of battle some of these recruitment and retention issues the US intelligence agencies release an annual demographic report which reports on things like gender and other forms of diversity in their intelligence community tracks how they're doing over time on a yearly basis and basically shares this information with the white public of course that helps researchers but it also helps um you know actual trust in institutions for kind of what can sometimes be a bit of a secret and a closed area of our government you know service, which is that it has, you know, unique, I guess, privileges, responsibilities and duties, uh, and therefore perhaps an even greater responsibility to be a representative. Now, in a lot of the work that I do here in Australia, I see that as a big opportunity. Um, You know, intelligence, national security agencies have often been at some of the forefront of our questions around government accountability and trust. And, you know, again, their unique positioning means that they do have a a unique opportunity, I suppose. So I would love to see a little bit Mm. more action to be happening in this space. That that point about um, greater expectations of accountability, and I I suppose 
Australians having perhaps a perhaps a lower level of trust uh, in the accountability of their government is obviously washed through with things like um, creation of the National Anti uh, Corruption Commission um, and even the the uptick in the independent Atiel vote at the last election. What I find kind of interesting about that though is on the one hand Australians are kind of saying we 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 want greater accountability of government because we don't necessarily trust how our government is working for us. But at the same time, there's been signals through COVID and other events that people want government to do more, that there's almost an expectation of greater intervention from, mm. from the state. So how do you kind of square those, those, those two kind of instincts? Yeah, I think that is really interesting. And, I mean, I'm from Queensland and uh, kind of lived through one of the first um, kind of uh, elections that we had during COVID, which saw Anastasia Palaszczuk re-elected to government. And we did a big study on this. And one of the main or major reasons she got re-elected was because people really supported her border closures at the time. And actually that was, you know, quite well supported. And so, and I think Dan Andrews, you know, another example just recently in Victoria of actually the people supporting uh, kind of government intervention in kind of their private lives almost mm. around some of this COVID um safety and protection, I suppose. So that that is interesting. And I think I've had a lot of discussions with with colleagues. And I think that where I land is that um that populations and diverse groups, they want to be represented in government and they want to have their say in government. Um, they want government to provide services, but I suppose that doesn't prevent them critiquing those services. Mm. So ultimately for again a, a healthy and functioning democracy you know, it's great to have really a representative workforce part of that and making the decisions and, and you know, actually government does have a really big role, particularly in a lot of these big national security issues where it's simply not something that the individual or community level can make, you know, decisions around or make policies for. But it doesn't mean that we are hands off. Mm. You know, we can mm. both buy into the system and also critique the system. And I think that that is the healthy tension point. Finding that healthy tension point—that's kind of the golden mm. space in mm. democracy, right? Mm. That that point is should be really um, well remembered when we kind of evaluate the longevity and the endurance of democracies writ large. You know, um, Rory, obviously, you know, looking looking abroad, we've seen kind of on one hand what might have been a bumpy road for democratic systems this year. You know, we had Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, now Rishi Sunak in in the UK, um, uh, and other transitions taking place. But at the same time, even though that's been grubby and messy, and as Elise is kind of saying, the, the many people are very frustrated with how the system's working. There does appear to be a kind of enduring resilience, I suppose, at the core of this this system. Well, look, there's it, it's very easy to have a declinist narrative about democracy, and I think uh, a lot of us have heard that in recent years. A lot of, a lot of us have seen the frustration, particularly of, of, often of, uh, of people who, who felt disenfranchised in a globalised economy. And the way that's manifested sometimes in really, you know, frightening and and and, and scary ways uh, in, in a number of countries, and or re- and, and you know, having said all of that, you know, parties of the far right in Sweden and Italy, for example, have um, have had successes this year. But all in all, I think this has been a good year for democracy. If you look at the uh, the way in which the line has been held, the moderate centre has held uh, in the United States. Uh, we've seen. Australia do its uh, unique democracy sausage thing and have you know a very uh, a, you know a, a very 
clean transition and change of government with actually um, significant continuities as well as changes in policy settings. You've seen, uh, despite all of the ructions in the United Kingdom, I think, again, um, faith in that uh, in that system hold. You've seen uh, France get through uh, a challenge from the far right this year as well. And most importantly, going back to Ukraine, you've seen that that stand uh, by a democracy and a democracy that has demonstrated its willingness to sustain very, very significant sacrifice. So it's certainly not to, um, it, it's certainly uh, not not the right time to say that democracy is out of the woods and that it's somehow won this uh, challenge uh, from the authoritarian uh, regimes that we've seen in recent years. But uh, I, I still think there's a staying power and a resilience there that we're only beginning now to track. Uh, the next few years, of course, will be a really big test because a lot of the um, the practical and material impacts, for example, of the Ukraine conflict will begin to be felt, uh, whether it's in Europe or, or, or globally, and that political will of democratic citizenries to go through hardship hasn't yet fully been tested, mm, mm. Um, but I'm not giving up on that anytime soon. We'll be right back. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Dale, speaking about the next few years, I think one of the difficulties that policymakers and academics, anyone observing this, this space can experience is really getting a, a firm grasp on the pace of change. You know, things can happen seemingly so rapidly and then other then other um, forces can take so long to manifest. I mean, when you're undertaking futures exercises um, with those that you work with, how do you help kind of inculcate a realistic appreciation of the, the pace of change, of, of what can actually happen in the world over the course of a year or five years or ten? Yeah, it's challenging and I think uh, futures work and thinking helps stretch the imagination. So we've been doing some great work with Joseph Foros, who's a futurist, and he often uses the quote from Stuart Brand, which is, the present moment used to be the unimaginable future. And I think that that sort of resonates really well with people to think, you know, if we can use scenarios and look at trends and drivers, as we call them, and how they play out over the next five or 10 years, it can challenge assumptions. It can put us in a a different space. It can neutralise a conversation where people might have strong views on policy and how it should be implemented. And it can get us thinking differently. And it does go to show that 
change is happening happening rapidly. Um, we need to think differently about policies, um, how we create them, who we consult when we're developing them. Um, we always encourage really diverse thought and bringing in, um, you know, different perspectives to think creatively about issues. So we always talk about how we're going to challenge our assumptions, bring in diversity to the conversation and put ourselves in a future that we may not have imagined but is likely or possible and step back to actions today that can help us prepare for that. That's mm. sort of our approach. Mm. So turning to the, to the future and, and what potential changes we might see realistically in 2023, um, there's a couple of things I guess I'm watching with interest or will watch with interest. Uh, you know, domestically, um, the Australian government has, has said it's going to commit to a new national um, strategy on cybersecurity. So it'll be interesting in the wake of, you know, um, the Optus and Medibank attacks, what potential new regulations or measures might emerge um, as a result of of that strategy, uh, we're obviously anticipating the completion of the defence strategic review in in March, which will tell us which uh, submarine we're going to be getting, among many other things. And then, I suppose internationally, other things that I'm I'm kind of wondering about. And Roy, I'd be interested to kind of get your reaction to this proposition: is whether we may be seeing the kind of acceleration of multipolarity in in the sense that um, we've got. Uh, a block of authoritarian nations kind of firming up on one hand and then Western westernized states on another. But we do still have this persistent um, group of countries who are languishing kind of outside of what international systems and international institutions are able to address. And I'm thinking particularly about Myanmar, but also um, where Afghanistan is at and in, and even um, Yemen as well. And Ukraine may fall into this category. So whether or not we are actually seeing the emergence of an international system where there's increasingly going to be more people out there who won't be able to be assisted by international um, order. Um, I might be getting too pessimistic, but um, that's something that's that's kind of struck out at me. So, any reactions to all of that? <laughs> There's so many big questions. There's so many big questions there, Will, and a few a few assertions that I agree with, and a few that I don't. So, I'll I'll just quickly start on what I see as um, major risks and challenges in the year ahead, certainly from an Australian perspective, and maybe a couple of comments on the international system. And very very happy for others to um, to challenge on that. I mean, firstly. Uh, I think you asked earlier about uh, the risks and threats to Australia's interests, uh, not just the year ahead, but in the year that's just gone by. And the, you know, the the example of the aggression against Ukraine is having this uh, cascading global impact that will affect not only Australia but 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 all of us really. And so, looking at the um, the intersection of uh, economics of supply chains of energy you know the global economic impact of that conflict um, is going to be felt for years to come the model um, if you can call it that the uh, the kind of hideous model of um, a major act of aggression in the international system and the lessons learned from that is going to matter deeply in our region and of course everyone's looking to see what lessons uh, China takes from Russia's aggression and whether this makes the prospect of uh, an attack on Taiwan more likely or less. Um, and again, that has profound implications for Australia. One thing that's emerged in a lot of my conversations this year in this country and overseas, particularly with the private sector, is that sense that anyone in business now who's thinking beyond literally tomorrow's revenues is um, aggressively uh, worrying about the uh, the consequences and the risks of conflict 
um, for not only their economic interests but for social cohesion, uh, for international order. So I'd keep all of those issues still on the list. Um, I think we've probably turned a corner in the way we're addressing the challenge of China in the immediate neighbourhood in the South Pacific. I think that we're beginning to engage uh, a much wider range of partners in helping to uh, limit China's ability to dominate that region that uh, Australia is part of and that's so close to us. And I think that's a, if you like, a small ray of hope because, of course, a lot of the concerns of the small countries in the Pacific uh, are precisely the sorts of concerns we've talked about already today, the impact of um, of climate change, the need for an inclusive development model. Uh, so engaging this kind of this sea of many flags, these many international partners in, in, in um, partnering with those countries is something that uh, we're beginning to see much more clearly this year, and in a sense, the the you know the concerns about China's security presence have actually been the catalyst, mm. uh, a catalyst for that. So um, you know, look, look, looking forward, I would uh, I, I would say that uh, addressing these risks with all of our resources is going to be a continuing priority for Australia. I do think that those questions about, uh, if you like motivating a population that's having economic pain and is understandably concerned about these issues of inclusion, but motivating them also um, to see the view that we need to address those issues alongside probably a more traditional national security set of views, having um, defence capabilities that actually match Australia's interests, uh, being able to deter some sort of aggressive behaviour in our region, those things should all be consistent, but partly because of the way uh, national security has been politicised in the past, it's going to take um, pretty articulate leadership and thoughtful leadership to um, have that conversation with the Australian public. Mm. Elise, 2023, what, what's on your radar? <laughs> yeah, I think um, some of it flares into what we've already discussed, but I suppose to big things related to national security would be on my mind. And one would be kind of managing transitions, I suppose. So, you know, there's a whole range of different, um, I don't know, policy platforms or, you know, even if we're talking about kind of the rules-based international order and, you know, who it's working for and who it's not and, you know, how we manage our relations with others and how we manage transitions. And, I mean, we talk about a lot in uh, kind of the climate change, you know, climate action space where, you know, if you're going to move from fossil fuel dependencies in areas to renewable energies or other industries, then you have to do a just transition. So manage that transition in a way that brings people along, that gives people options, that doesn't, you know, disenfranchise or, uh, you know, make people otherwise feel disempowered throughout the process. And I think that that model can actually be used in lots of different scenarios. It's not just around climate change, but actually, you know, it's whether it's, you know, around our approach to the Pacific or China or Ukraine or, um, you know, space or any of these big topics, um, really, how are we managing that transition? Um, from what are we, we, we kind of know what we've come from, but where are we going to in all of this? And I think that goes to a lot of your work, Dale. Um, so h- how we kind of manage that, I think is one area. Um, second, you know, I think that I, I really come back to this fact that 
diplomacy is our first line of defense when mm. we're talking about national security. And, you know, if you look at Lowy Institute's done, uh, you know, decades of analysis of uh, diplomacy's budget in Australia, um, you know, on the decline or stagnating. I've done my own analysis of, uh, you know, Australian diplomacy as compared with some of the national security agencies and what's this actually mean for our, you know, ability to influence um and I guess meet our counterparts on an equal footing in the world. And I'd say that this is an area that we do need to focus on. We need to think strategically about kind of what are the the long term investments that can be done at a at a public people to people level that perhaps we're not fully you know engaged with right now. Um, you know what are kind of at that you know I guess formal you know diplomatic level agreements like how are we actually resourcing what we're doing? Um, is our kind of money where the mouth is? You know, and mm. and and you know it ultimately what do we want our um, I guess diplomatic fo- footprint and uh, kind of potential to be in the future? I actually think we need to you know have a long, hard look at um, the role of public diplomacy and, you know, obviously we've seen falling investments in this space, um, you know, just kind of building some of those bilateral and multilateral ties that I think maybe we've neglected for some time. So I see that as an opportunity because um, whilst we're doing kind of all the the hard work around, you know, traditional national security, which I think is really important, this fits in really significantly and before we ever come to, you know, using battleship and guns and, you know, other kind of forms of national security defence, um, you know, actually there's a lot of conversation that happens um, before that. I think I would change the question slightly, mm. Will. Um, we wouldn't think necessarily just out to next year but mm. probably out to the next five to ten years. So while we might plan for next year, we'd be considering the longer-term trends in doing that. And I think the challenge is, as you asked earlier, about the complexity of the future and the challenge for government and policymakers on thinking long term. Uh, I know some international work is already underway that's really interesting around intergenerational fairness um, in Wales and other countries about ensuring that the policies we develop today consider future generations. And I think that's our challenge is as the world develops in that through that complexity, how can we foresee what likely futures might unfold? Let's think out five to ten years. Let's think about, you know, unusual scenarios and situations and how we can plan for that today. I think it goes to some of Elisa's earlier comments about, you know, the future of work. What does that look like for Australia, um, you know, and how we plan for you know, funding and uh, the technology and the resources we need for our intelligence community and our public service. What are the expectations of our community and our public servants um, and how we kind of think long term about what that looks like and how we fund and resource that uh, in response to those future challenges. So I think I'd put it out a little mm. bit longer than just next mm. year. So you used a really nice phrase there about seeing through complexity. And as we draw this conversation to a close, I wanted to um, ask you all about something I suppose that's helped you see through the complexity of this year, whether it's something you've read, listened to or, or watched or even an event that you've tended, a- attended that you felt um, really helped bring clarity to to some degree of complexity. And I suppose while I give you time to to reflect on what what that might be, I'll I'll put forward um, two things that I think I've found 
useful. Um, one was a podcast series called The Prince by The Economist um, that was released around the time of the 20th National Congress, which was an incredible deep dive into the life and times of Xi Jinping. And I think for anyone looking for an excellent example of um, open source intelligence, I think that podcast series is excellent both in terms of the breadth of um, sources that it brought together, um, but then also its method of communication. I think um, a lot of us uh, who've worked in intelligence often um, battle with how to actually get the information in front of decision makers, and that was a really hyper-consumable um, product, so one to listen to. And something else I've, I've returned to recently um, actually is not, not anything new, but it's actually um, Headley Bull's book, The Anarchical Society, which I think was published in 1975, um, about uh, the role of great powers in establishing international order. Um, it struck me that everything we've been talking about this year warranted a reread of that the, that book and just a general reminder that I think it's always worth going into the dusty corners of a library and finding the stuff that's been published a while ago. And sometimes you discover some of the things that we think are brand new and we're reading and we're discovering for the first time are actually not all that new. So um, some encouragement there to go and attend your local library as well. So Elise, what's what's on your list? Yeah, um, look, tricky question, but I think um, one book that uh, has really kind of helped define my thinking this year would be What We Owe the Future by William McGaskill, who's a philosopher come out of the UK who basically does all of this work around thinking about the temporal kind of limits we often place on our on our thinking as human beings, but also in government and in policymaking. And he he basically talks about how, you know, Homo sapiens has been around for have been around for around 300,000 years. Now, if you compare that with the average lifespan of, you know, a mammal species, mm. that's about one million years. So we are roughly one third of the way through Homo sapiens kind of potential life. We're right at the start, in other words. I think that that's such an interesting way to think about and, and look at where we are because it encourages us to take seriously actually how big the future could be, as well as how high the stakes are. It makes us think about, okay, actually what we do right now, we're not just at the end of some climate catastrophe that's about to, you know, subsume us all next year and, you know, we'll we'll die in a burning pit of, you know, um, you know, the earth, you know, going up in flames or whatever. Actually, it encourages us to think about actually we're right at the start of the actions that we could take now that could forever influence uh, you know, future generations, uh, future ecologies, you know, all, all the rest in a very dynamic way and encourages us to really ask, well, what do we owe the future given this? Given that we have so many different resources in our hands, we have so much life ahead of us still to live. I think that it's a really foundational kind of look at disrupting um, both our short-termism in just, you know, at a personal level of thinking, but also for governments. I think the call to action, and this goes to something Dale was mentioning earlier about the Welsh Commissioner for Future Generations. Actually, we have a greater need, perhaps now more than ever before, to not just think in such short-term policy cycles, mm. but we, you know, obviously we can't, you know, commit uh, future governments to policies today. You know, we do have some limits on that, but we actually do need to take a much more transformative look and longer-term look at, you know, what are the impacts that our policies are going to have right now um, for all different generations currently living as well as all future generations. And I think that this is something um, I guess that gets me excited because, you know, 
we don't have to be so, um, I suppose, despairing about our future. And actually, I really like there's this kind of phrase that's been coming up a lot in in my life around some of the the colleagues I'm working with of radical hope, right? And what would policy making look like? What would national security policy making look like if we applied a lens of radical hope? And honestly, I think that's something worth considering. I love that radical hope. Rory. We should definitely do a radical hope scenario. I think, <laughs> Love that, Dale. That sounds great. <laughs> Dale, has anything given you radical hope? <laughs> it has, it has. No, I think um, that's a good segue actually to some of the comments I was going to make. Um, some of the things that stood out to me in the last year was our engagement in the United Kingdom. The Futures Hub um, met with some wonderful people in the UK, including the Oxford Scenario School, um, the Office of um, Government Science, and there's just so much wonderful work out there being done on thinking about the future. And it's important to collaborate and think about how we can share those resources um, and insights um, and think creatively about the future and its complexity and, and how we think about future generations and how we plan for that today. Uh, I've got a couple of books on my Christmas reading list, um, which can build on Elisa's excellent suggestion. Uh, we actually met with Richard Fisher from the BBC. He's a freelance writer and he's written a book called The Long View, which um, is about reassessing our relationship with time. Um, an ANU associate is Dr. Catherine Ball, and she's written a book on, uh, called Converge, which is about um, the convergence of technology and humanity. So there's a few really wonderful books on thinking about the future um, and how we plan for that complexity today. So, Will, Will it's one of those uh, questions that could open up an entire new podcast episode unto itself because I think we all want to absorb, whether it's from things we read or see or people we meet, um, new ideas or ideas that, that that challenge our worldviews. A couple of things that have really struck me this year, and I was trying to pull a few threads together as I was listening, uh, and interestingly, uh, um, a couple of books I've read uh, at a place I've been have actually helped my thinking a lot about these issues of, of resilience and these issues of, uh, I guess, societies and individuals enduring incredibly difficult times and rebuilding as well. So uh, Dale mentioned earlier that the National Security College has done a lot of work in the United Kingdom this year and, you know, despite the um, uh, the nightmares many of us have had about the, the state of British politics uh, and its constant um, sort of churn and tumult in, in recent months, um, there are some institutional um, strengths there, I think, whether it's in the intellectual culture that, um, that Dale's spoken about. But even in the national security community in the UK, um, I was struck by a lot of engagement that the college had with the uh, UK Ministry of Defence and the way that they're working uh, that extraordinary um, information and intelligence campaign to support Ukraine. While the National Security College uh, had a large group of um, uh, course participants of Australian officials in in Britain for one of our courses recently, we held actually a dinner at um, in the, the the war rooms, Churchill's war rooms uh, uh, at Whitehall. You know the hist- historic venue, where historic place, where you know essentially in a bunker, a very basic bunker, uh, the Second World War was prosecuted and ultimately ultimately won. And I think the experience of uh, of, of being there and of uh, having a, a sort of pr- pretty privileged tour of um, of of that extraordinary living museum uh, is a reminder of th- that a small number of people with an incredible amount of dedication can make a can make a huge difference. And for the you know 
not many, the, the tens, the hundreds of um, of women and men who worked in Churchill's war rooms for five years during the Second World War, you know, they made that fundamental difference to um, the outcome of the, the 20th century. The last couple of, um, I guess, inspirations for me, a couple of books I've read this year, one, actually a, a German book, um, Aftermath, Life and the Fallout, of the Third Reich, which is about the rebuilding of Germany uh, from 1945 onwards by by Harald uh, Jana, and the you know the very painful um, but often inspiring human stories of of people building a democratic society um, out of you know an a- absolutely um, one, of, one of the most hor- horrendous uh, disasters and, and moral disasters of of, of human history. And then finally, uh, a book which um, might have a, uh, a, a sort of a finite audience here in Australia, but um, the, uh, the classic uh, Finnish novel of the Second World War, which I, um, or, or as the Finns would say, of the uh, continuation war, their, um, their long war against the Soviet Union. Um, in English, it translates as Unknown Soldier, and it's a, a novel uh, that is one of those stories of you know individual human courage and resilience, uh, which is even sharper when 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 you find yourself on the on the losing side of of a conflict. So, adding those pieces together, I, I kind of think some of those lessons from the nineteen thirties and forties are pretty useful today, even if we're not looking. Um, at a future of international conflict, but a future simply of um, of that that full spectrum struggle that we've spoken about today. Well, there's a smorgasbord of uh, radical hope and inspiration there in those recommendations. Um, so, Dale, Rory, Elise, thank you so much for your reflections and good luck for 2023. Thanks so much. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Will. Uh, see you on the other side. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.